Au printemps, Tipaza est habité par les dieux, et les dieux parlent dans le soleil et l'odeur des absinthes. La mer cuirassée d'argent, le ciel bleu et cru, les ruines couvertes de fleurs, et la lumière à gros bouillons dans les amas de pierre. In the 11th season of this podcast, we'll be exploring some great works of literature that have something to impart to us about the nature, importance, and dangers of beauty. Okay, so check out Nietzsche's New Year's resolution. I want to tell you what I've wished for myself today. I want to learn more and more to see as beautiful what is necessary in things. Then I shall be one of those who make things beautiful. Amor fati. Let that be my love henceforth. I don't want to wage war against what is ugly. I don't want to accuse. Looking away shall be my only negation. And all in all, someday, I wish to be only a yes-sayer. Wow, couldn't we all use a few more resolutions like that? This is the wisdom of, and this is episode 5, Camus' Early Writings, The Lyrical Essays. Wisdom of podcasts. We have our our unique, our very own versions of kind of prototypical horror characters, like like the slasher movies. In horror movies, you've got Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, Jason, characters that can take a complete flame broiling and axe to the skull, an utter disemboweling. But no big deal. They'll be back for the sequel and the next one and the next and the next and on and on. We do very few disemboweling here at the Wisdom of Compound, but we do have a certain quote-unquote, I don't know, like certain quote-unquote characters that can never be put into the ground. And last episode, in my rambling incoherence, I mentioned good old Albert Camus, and poof, he is back. And really, don't kid yourself, at the end of this episode, if you listen carefully, Albert will arise from the depths, and surely he will be back. Yeah, he's he's immortal, that guy. And he's back again for, for what, the, the fourth or the, the fifth time on the podcast? Okay, but before I start, let me mention a couple of things. So, first of all, it's that time of year. So, happy holidays, wherever you are around the world. And the second thing I, I want to mention is, is this. So, if it's not already painfully obvious. We're not the most technologically or marketing savvy people in the world. But I have heard tell that if you enjoy a podcast or find it interesting, then it's always helpful to leave a rating or a review. So if you listen on iTunes or any platform that allows for it, please help us out by doing just that if you're so inclined. I mean, I want to make it clear that we ask for and expect no remuneration 
other than to increase our circle of like-minded friends around the world. Okay, well, let's get to the matter at hand today. So, first, and as usual, a brief summary. So, Camus' lyrical essays are a collection of essays Camus wrote between 1937 and 1958. They include his very earliest writings and some of his very last. Today we're going to focus on those early ones, which mostly take the form of prose poetry, which are overflowing with a, a lyrical and rhapsodic love of the earth. Now, apart from the, the beauty of their language, these early poetical works are tremendously important, and that's because they're a testimony of Camus' original inspiration. And in them, you see those, those basic truths he carried with him all throughout his philosophical and literary life. One of the more pathetic admissions I can offer is sometimes how many things that I enjoy purely conceptually rather than true, deep, resonant feelings. Like, I became a vegetarian, not out of a beautiful love for animals, but a complete inability to argue against the merits of it. When I read Camus, the love of both sun and sea jumps off the page, but me, God, like I said, it's more of an abstract admiration. I think I've told you all about my rock-like swimming abilities. I can add to that, in terms of skin tone, I am the whitest of white, painfully so, sometimes literally, to the point where I actually got sunburned feet through my shoes. But Camus, he mines so much, so much poetry, so much beauty from the sun and the sea. Yeah, actually, I was there when you got sunburned uh, through your shoes. Very strange, but not surprising. But yeah, you're right. Camus is constantly referencing the sun and the sea and many of nature's elements. And actually, they all play very important roles in his philosophical outlook on things. Okay, but before I get to this specifically, let me um, back up a bit and give some context. Okay, so in much of the, the lyrical essays, Camus is talking about and celebrating his encounter with nature in North Africa, which is where he was born and spent the, the formative years of his life. Now, at times, his early view on nature is a kind of, I don't know, a kind of neo-pagan or polytheistic or pantheistic one. That is, he often sees nature as animated by various ancient deities. He says, In the spring, Tapasa is inhabited by the gods, and the gods speak in the sun. Now, I should make it clear that the gods of his paganism are not real ones, but they're more like, I don't know, figures of speech. But it does go to show just how sacred and beautiful Camus thinks that nature is. At the same time, though, and this is really important, there's also something incredibly dangerous and indifferent about nature. It has a disturbingly impersonal quality. Now, it's these two sides of the same coin that Camus explores in many of these earlier works. And, well, it's precisely this sort of dualism that we're going to look at here. Okay, 
So maybe the best way of doing this is by starting off with Camus' symbolic use of the sun. So as anyone who's even just read a little bit of Camus knows, it's the images of the sun and the the blinding light that dominate his early writings. Actually, you know, another one of my favorite artists is Vincent van Gogh. And in his paintings, he often emphasizes the sun and the light, too. Anyway, in the Algerian sky, the one that Camus grew up under, the sun is, well, it's, it's exorbitant and it's omnipotent. And it has a dual nature. On the one hand, the sun's the source of all light, life, happiness, beauty, and optimism. But on the other hand, it's violent, destructive, and merciless, right? It's an incendiary sun. That's to say, it eventually burns everything up. In this sense, then, the sun confirms the the transience of all of our lives and achievements. It's the ultimate emperor that presides over us and reveals to us the futile passions that we really are. Okay, so then taken together, what does this dual nature of the sun teach us then? Well, to, to quote Camus, it teaches us that the world is beautiful and that outside of it, there is no salvation. In other words, what the sun teaches us is to be happy and to enjoy life and to love it with complete abandon for the very reason that there is no other life than this one, since death is a closed door. Actually, apparently on many tombstones in North Africa, going back to the centuries after Christ, you can find inscribed in Greek and Latin the following, I was not, I was, I am no more, and I have no regret. Now, In a sense, I think this is pretty apt when it comes to Camus' outlook. Life is precious because it's not eternal. Maybe another way of saying this is that life and its joys are inseparable from death. That there's no real happiness and gratitude without despair. Really, if if anything is a sin, it's longing for another life when you should be making the most out of this one one that won't ever come again. Actually, this this is why Camus appreciated Algerians so much. It's because he believed that they really lived each moment of their lives as if it were their last. Their life was like that of of a desert flower. It was brief but intense. They lived knowing full well that that same splendid sun that tans their skin will soon shrivel it. In other words, they knew the black side of the sun. But it's why they bathed all the more happily in its light. For Camus, ultimately, theirs was the truest joy and the deepest love. A joy without hope and a love without expectations of anything beyond the immediate experience. Actually, this is partly why Camus rejected Christianity. It's because... It's because, well, the Christian, realizing that they're condemned to death, will repudiate this world by embracing another future one, rather than like the the pagan or the Algerian, 
intensifying their passion for this life precisely because it's transitory. Okay, before I go on, I think it's quickly worth mentioning, for those of you who don't know, that Camus suffered from tuberculosis as a teenager and as a young adult and almost died from it. And I think it's it's safe to say that these experiences also deeply informed his outlook on life. I mean, does anything give life its true value more than the, than the consciousness of death? I can imagine that even the most humble flower becomes a miracle for the one who thinks they're going to die. So, I guess my point here is that I think Camus' sickness made him aware of nature in a way that many of us who are blessed by some strength and health often ignore or just take for granted. And a quick aside here. Here's something pretty interesting. It turns out that many critics have noticed in Camus' writing a great number of respiratory images, which they link to his own struggle for breath and an effort to resist suffocation. That's kind of neat, right? Anyway, okay, well, the sun's not the only natural object that Camus employs symbolically or uses to throw some light on the human condition. He also writes about the wind and the stones and the desert. And his short piece, The Wind at Jamila, is a good example of this. And again, here the theme is transience and death. Now, these are places, like Jamila and the desert, that are not only marked by an absence of life, but there's also something entirely inhuman about them, he says. In other words, the stones and the desert and the wind reveal to us a strange and indifferent world, one that's foreign and dense and irreducible and hostile, one that really makes us feel as if we don't belong here, and one in its immensity and its power could negate us in one fell swoop. Now, Camus seems pretty right about this, no? I mean, the desert, in particular, feels like it belongs to another world, right? A world without concern or salvation. And a world that turns all who walks its stones into fugitives. And this is why we're so wary and anxious of it. Because it secretes both an an acrid smell and and a primeval silence that we know deep down are the same ones that will mark the end of our life. Okay, but for all this, there's also the sea, which Camus also mentions quite often. Now, the sea obviously stands for solace, for for consolation, for relief, and for revitalization in a climate burning with heat and hot stones. And what's more, I think swimming for him is also the most the most perfect expression of our temporary union with nature. You know, like being enveloped by water and the like. But the sea and the beach is also used symbolically for youth and for life, for love and for for sexual awakening. It's where young bodies looking like the athletes of Delos splash around in simple animal joy. In this sense, I think it ultimately stands for a kind of vitality, cleansing, and renewal. That's to say that despite the fact that everything burns up around it, there is always a new life and a new beginning to be had. 
even though, of course, it might not be our own. Okay, so to sort of sum up then, for Camus, nature is beautiful and holy, but it's also alarmingly indifferent. It offers no promise of immortality. Quite the opposite, actually. Nature's enduring features just serve to remind us of the brevity of our existence. Now, the trick for Camus is to do our best to reconcile these two things. It's to to take in and enjoy the splendor and riches of nature and of life, while at the same time to accept and not to try to escape what that nature teaches, the tragedy that is our finitude. Now, I should say that at this stage in Camus' thinking, there's really not that much of a unified or explicit philosophical position. But for those who are familiar with his subsequent writings, you'll clearly recognize the the seed that he's planted here, the one that grows into that famous notion of the absurd, which is what Camus is probably most famous for. And if you don't know what the absurd is, hey, no better place to find out than on our earlier episode on Camus' myth of Sisyphus. Further evidence of a youth misspent, I had an intense, albeit brief, obsession with wrestling, professional wrestling. And you can't spend any time in that world with running into Ric Flair, his ubiquitous uh, woo. He is the nature boy. The thing is, he wasn't the first. He stole it. There was a wrestler, a guy I'd never heard of, named Buddy Rogers, who was the nature boy long before he was. Imagine being in a field like that where someone not only steals your idea, but your name, your whole thing. So if Rick can steal it with his frankly strange wrestling body, we can steal it here and maybe assign nature boy to someone a bit more deserving. If we limit ourselves to writers uh, like Thoreau, Thoreau would be an obvious choice. If we get rid of the boy part, we could go with someone like Rachel Carson. But obvious choice here, you know the theme of the episode, how about a bit of a dark horse? Today's focus, good old Albert. Camus, the nature boy. I like it. And you know what? It's definitely true. I mean, one experience that he often describes in the, in the lyrical essays, most clearly, by the way, in one called Nuptials, is how it is he often feels an ineffable oneness or a being in communion with the natural world around him. Even more radically, he talks about being assimilated into nature by its grandeur and its power, and so being completely annihilated or de-individuated by it. Actually, Camus thinks that we all have this temptation or desire from time to time, to let go or surrender ourselves and simply identify ourselves with this brute, impassive universe that surrounds us. A universe which is free of history and all human agitations. Now, he makes it clear that this isn't an instinct for destruction, nor creation. No, it's an instinct to be like nothing at all. Or maybe more accurately, It's the desire to be free of consciousness, the desire to escape our divided nature, or the fissure of being, as Sartre sometimes puts it. 
You see, it's precisely this fissure, namely our consciousness, which separates us from the rest of nature. I mean, a rock and a cat, well, they just are what they are, right? That is, they're totally self-contained, completely at one with being. They're full as an egg. Well, sometimes we want to be like trees and cats. We want to slip or melt back into the dense integrity of things and be nothing more than a stone among stones. The problem, though, is that it's just not possible. Our conscious condition is such that we're forever in exile from nature. No, no matter how hard we might try, we can't but help to stand alone among all forms of life, in a state of unbelonging, alienated from nature. Actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, this makes me think of something else that he talks about in these early essays. Namely, travel. And it's not unrelated to what I just said. Okay, so one thing that Camus noticed about traveling, especially when he traveled to places like the Czech Republic, is how much it disturbed him to be away from the shelter of familiarity and from comforting routines and rhythms. And that's because he found that traveling took away those masks and habits behind which we normally function and hide. And so it revealed just how unfamiliar we are not only with ourselves, but also with others. In other words, what traveling ultimately does is it exposes our, our fundamental alienation from self and from others. It reveals to us the well, the, the, the metaphysical stranger or outsider that we really are, whether at home or abroad. Forever in exile from the world and fundamentally homeless, that is the human condition for Camus. There, there just is no permanent way to be at one with the world or to produce the kind of unity that we so desire there will always be an astonishing disproportion between our human needs and the silent earth. And so, there just is no consolation or redemption. There is no mythological or religious link connecting us to the things around us. No, there are only rocks and flesh and stars. And those truths which the hand can touch and our senses can and should rejoice in. Okay. So that marks the end of season 11. I hope you found some of it interesting. So what's coming up next? Well, how about something completely different? How about the wisdom of gods? That should be fun, right? Okay, well, thanks for listening and stay tuned. Stay tuned.